Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Welcome to another edition of Word in Your Ear. Now, there wasn't a lot of interest in Nick Drake when his three albums were first released. I mean, the general estimates were that it's, they sold between them about 6,000 copies. But the appetite for information about him over 50 years later just keeps expanding. And there's a new and very significant book just out which takes giant steps in this direction and leaves virtually no friend or acquaintance uh, uninterviewed, and it's called Nick Drake, The Life, and it's the work of Richard Morton Jack. Richard, lovely to see you. Thank you. Likewise. So, so firstly, why, why was there a particular purpose that you had in mind when you started writing this book? Um, well, I, I find it very interesting myself, so I was curious to um, try to plug in the gaps, and, and I felt that there was a lot of misconception and mythologising surrounding him. Um, and I think Nick's in the unusual category of artists, whether or not one particularly likes his music is irrelevant, who will continue to be of interest in generations to come just because he exudes that fascination personally. So I felt that without wanting to sound pompous, for posterity, it was quite a useful exercise to talk to the people who actually knew him and to try to get things straight. Um, so, so that how many did you dry. talk to? I mean, it's just an enormous number of people you've been to track down. And roughly how many did you talk to? About 200. That's yeah. absolutely astonishing. Yeah, well, you never know with someone like Nick who's going to say something fascinating, who, who, who will have carried with them a little memory, which is enlightening. So, And they tend to know each other because it's quite a small circle. Nick, Nick operated fairly privately. So it's cousins who know other family people and it's it, it, it's it's the sort of exercise that could only really be done with the help of his inner circle as it were and it's not an authorized biography but it, it does have the blessing first one in fact to, to, to be published it does have the blessing of his sister gabrielle drake who's the sort of keeper of the flame isn't it so so why did she approve of this and did you get any letters or or editorial from her that's never been published before um she approved it, I think, slightly against her um, previous judgment. I think she had always felt that to approve a book of about Nick would mean that she was trying to put forward the authorised version, in inverted commas. Yeah. That's why the word authorised isn't on the jacket, because she wanted to, to make it clear that she wasn't puppeteering. Um, but I think she recognised that if she didn't support a book like this with access to documents and school reports and you know, private family papers, um, a lot of misconceptions would pass into fact or would be taken for fact, especially concerning her parents, who she feels very uh, strongly should be properly represented, um, fairly represented rather than just, you know, hagiographied. Um, so... Um, what kind of misconceptions are there then, do you think, that you wanted well, to... Well, some of them are quite out? small, such as that 
you know, Nick was might have been gay or Nick might have been a heroin addict. And these can turn into assumptions and get repeated as if they're facts. And I think that sort of bugs her, but doesn't bother her. Obviously, those things aren't shameful. They're just facts, but, you know, possible possible outcomes. But I think the things that bothered her more was the suggestion that Nick's illness could have been handled more sensitively within the family, that Nick would have survived if certain things had been done differently. Um, and I think a, a quite a sober analysis of those final years in particular, um, that doesn't leave much space for another outcome. And I think she's always known that. She lived with it. And I think a lot of Nick's fans have have um, speculated that the family was stiff up a lip and didn't do what they could have done to make him feel supported. And um, I don't think on her account, more on her parents, she was very keen for a, an honest um, view to, to come out of, of, of all of the papers and stuff that survive. Yeah, where Michael and I often, when we, we read biographies of rock legends of various kinds, we increasingly find ourselves saying, it's the family I feel sorry for. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and this is... This is the ultimate case of it's the family feel sorry for because they you're so right about what you say about his parents because your heart breaks reading about their their efforts to to deal with him and to express their love for him and so forth and to understand him and of course it's it's a uh, you're you're dealing with an era where people wrote letters aren't you which must have been a it's a great boon to a biographer yes. Uh- you say we're dealing with an era where people wrote letters. I mean, we're certainly dealing, obviously, with an era where people didn't send texts and emails and so on. But, I mean, did, did you two send letters, newsy letters, to your parents in the early 70s? I think Nick was quite unusual in this regard. Sometimes, but, yeah, not, not that often. you might. But, yeah, but he, I mean, it's interesting because they're really moving. There's letters from his dad, really long letters talking oh, about yeah. his decision to drop out of university and to pursue his musical career and how he might come to regret this, but they're going to stand by him and want him to find himself and all that. And they're, they're really very moving. They, they couldn't have done more to support him, really. Well, I'm really glad that's your take because that's also mine. But um, I can see there's accounts of you inferred from the same evidence where people might say, um, oh, his father's just trying to control him and boss him around. And he's an old patrician and Nick's um, a genius. And and I actually think that his father navigated very sensitively the, the generation gap and the need to, you know, keep his son in line as he saw it with also, um, you know, recognising that Nick was a talented, artistic, slow developer in, in other sort of personal ways. Um, I really admire Nick's parents. I think he was very lucky to have such supportive parents. Definitely. Absolutely, definitely. I mean, were the two kind of, I suppose, most controversial characters in the book, as far as Nick was concerned, were, were his father and Joe Boyd, both of whom were, without whom, none of this would have happened, would it? We wouldn't be talking about it. No, I, of course um, Nick, Nick was very lucky with the, the major influences in his life. And um, just as a sidetrack in the book by <clears throat> Trevor Dan, which was the last biography of Nick, Trevor Dan says that Nick's father bullied him, basically, screamed at him. He even says he blackmailed him. It's extraordinary the way that these perceptions go into print and then find their way into Wikipedia. And um, I do think that you know, Nick's parents were very supportive. And I think Joe Boyd, it's been overstated how well Joe knew Nick. I mean, Joe was so busy, it's almost unbelievable. He produced 16 albums in the in 1970s. Yes. I mean, yeah. and they're all good albums. They're, they're good. all good. That's the winnable yeah. records. It's not just sticking a mic in someone's face and <laughs> you know, claiming in advance. It was proper work. And so, and he was putting people concerts on and touring America with the string band and dealing with difficulties with fothering gay and God knows what. So I, I think it's been overstated the extent to which Joe actually knew Nick personally. Of course, though, he represented something important to Nick. He was Nick's, um, Svengali is a negative word, but he was the the, the impresario, whatever one might say, who, who discovered Nick and who Nick regarded as as having his career in, in his control. Um, and, and Joe was very supportive of Nick's need for space and time. Um, I don't know if you guys can think of an example, but I was recently thinking to myself, 
hadn't occurred to me while I was writing the book, really. But five leaves left. Um, you know, Nick, no one had a clue who he was. He had no profile at all. Um, it was made over a period of about 18 months. And yeah. Joe just said to Nick, come into the studio, work on a song, go away again, give me a call when you've got another song, come back, we'll do a couple, we'll try it with a conga player, we'll try it with some strings, if not, we'll do it. Can you think of another first album in, in that era by a folky type singer that was recorded over such a long period? I mean... No, not at all. No, it's most contracts in those days um, meant two albums a year. Right, and, and the sessions would be 48 hours for someone like Nick, at best, maybe one day on yeah, track. Maybe, maybe one day, yes. Was. I mean, Bert Yanch presumably made his albums over the course of one evening. You know, that was yeah. the way it went down. And and I think for Nick to have this absolute luxury, really, um, was very unusual. And Joe, I think, recognised almost instinctively that Nick needed you- that approach. It struck me that that when he got the record deal, basically Ashley Hutchings uh, of Flapper Convention saw him, I think, playing at the Roundhouse, whatever, and went back to Joe and said, you must see this guy. And Joe said, send me a tape, and he heard the tape and immediately thought, this is fantastic, we're going to make a record. It couldn't have been easier. In some ways, if it had been more difficult getting a record deal, do you think it would have changed his attitude towards what he expected of the rest of his career? Because he kind of... You know, he, he he assumes, basically, because everyone's told him, that, that Five Leaves Left is going to be a massive success and is then yes. incredibly disappointed when it isn't. Absolutely. And, Do you and think I, it would have been harder, uh, you know, easier for him if, if he'd had a, a bit of a struggle at the beginning? Yes, I'm sure it would have. I, I, I think Nick did do some hustling, though. It would. I think it's wrong to assume that he just, it all fell into his lap. I mean, it did, yeah. fundamentally. But he got back from Aix-en-Provence and, and Morocco in, in the summer of 67. And I think he had realised during his time away that he was good and that writing songs was definitely what he wanted to, to focus on for his future. It wasn't just a hobby anymore. And so in that summer, he started making tapes and dropping them off. And Chris Blackwell met him that's you know that year. And, and Nick played him a few songs with a guitar in his office. And... and um, Dennis Preston at Lansdowne and um, Steve Rowland at um, Hansa. You know, Nick was going around the publishers and the record companies trying to get a deal, trying to get his songs signed up for others to record and so on. So I think this image we have of Nick always in his ivory tower, sadly sort of sitting at the foot of his bed singing to the moon is is, is wrong. <laughs> he was hustling yeah. um, within posh parameters. Um, he wasn't schlepping off endlessly to you know, the end of the tube line to play in a small folk club. Um, But he wanted to move himself forward, but it did fall into his lap with Joe for sure. Um, And, uh, and he was very lucky because I'm not sure even within, I'm sure others perhaps would have recognized Nick's talent, but I'm not sure others would have given him that amount of leeway. Talk about his, his live performances, which is kind of gone into history as, or into myth as he only played about twice and he walked off stage it's a lot more complicated than that, isn't it? As you as you recount this book, extraordinary range of, of not a huge number of shows, but a extraordinary range of different things, kind of working men's clubs almost, and company dues, and and so May balls. Yes, yes, talk about that. Swiss Swiss ski resorts, I think Paris bars. Yes, I, I, I think a lot of things about Nick's life have either been overstated or understated. And as with most aspects of all of our lives, the truth is just the, the obvious middle ground. Um, and yeah, yes, Nick played quite a lot of gigs. Um, he didn't just play one or two and he played quite well and he was a good performer. Um, and a lot of people found him charismatic and entertaining on stage. Um, I think that the problem for him was that, that finding the, the right fit for him in terms of reproducing what was on his records uh, was really difficult and um, playing in big halls supporting Genesis at Ewell Tech or whatever I think Nick just knew it was a waste of time he was grateful for his 10 quid at the end of the evening but I think he knew that no one was going to buy a record of his or know who he was at the end that and and I think that was what was cumulatively quite demoralizing the sense that if he was playing in the Purcell rooms with a cellist and everyone sitting politely, 
and clapping at the end of each song, he'd have been absolutely in his element. But that's not reality. You had to work up towards <laughs> that sort of venue, the prestige recital room where, where he would have really worked. Do you think he learned from the experience? Because you never get the impression he's getting any better. You'd think if he'd had a very bad experience on stage, you'd come away from that and think, well, I won't do that that way next time. And yet, actually, it doesn't seem to, it doesn't seem to improve. No, I, I wonder whether a personal manager would have licked him into shape a bit more in terms of that. But I think his personality was fundamentally ill-suited to display, to yeah. banter, to dealing with someone who might be obnoxious. You know, John yeah. Martin, to take an obvious comparator, yeah. um, you know, was was very confident on stage and would stop in the middle of a song and tell someone to fuck off or whatever. And he yeah. just, he didn't have any problem with interacting with strangers quite confidently and and I don't think Nick um had that in him it just wasn't his personality so I wonder um but it's very it's a bit complicated talking about Nick's live career um objectively because the disaster of Nick's mental illness came upon him right when he was meant to be building his live profile at the end of 69 going into 1970 things just started going awry and one of the possible factors was that he felt he couldn't perform in the venues that he was um, matched to. Um, but I think it's glib to say, well, that's why things went wrong. But you were talking about advice there. David and I were talking about this yesterday, that I get the impression that he didn't really have any any major advisor in his life. I mean, his record label boss, Chris Blackwell, was kind of a bit distant and not that involved. Joe Boyd, just really too busy. There was no kind of real manager. There was no agent. There was no fellow musicians that seemed to give him a lot of advice. There was no girlfriend, in fact. There was no kind of... They didn't have the kind of support system that most people normally have. Would that be fair no, to say? I, I think that's very true. Uh, I think it was available to him. I mean, he didn't have a personal manager who was with him every step of the way. Yeah. But, um, but I think because Nick seemed so still and so self-contained, he was a figure of some... He inspired kind of awe in his peers. And I think they all assumed he was stronger than he was or that he was getting from other people what he wasn't getting from them personally. Yes. yes. That, that, that is, I don't, sorry to cut across you. Hmm. That is one of the things that comes out in the book all the way through, talking to his school friends, university friends. They all assumed his life must be going on somewhere else and that they only saw one little bit of it. Yes. And he had this bizarre ability you know, referred to throughout the book to just turn up at people's houses and not say anything. He, yeah. could, he can enter a room or be in a pub or anything, and he would literally not talk. I think you quote Sandy Denny as saying, she used to say, Nick, talk to me. You've got to talk yes. to me. And she just couldn't deal yes. with it. Although I don't think he came across as a sort of intimidating raven perched on a bookshelf in a corner of a room where everyone was a bit nervous about the next move or who this creature was I think his presence by all accounts was quite warm and genial he he added things to a room even though he never roared with laughter or did a funny impression of the you know Prince Philip or whatever I mean you know, <laughs> he, he just had a nice vibe to him so he was well liked and 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 um and and uh valued in a space it's just that he 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 didn't really participate he was always on his own in his own space on his own. One of the things I one of the things I loved about the book, uh, and uh, my wife's been reading it over my shoulder, is determined to read it since I've finished, and she has no great interest in Drake. What I love about the book is the way it evokes genuinely the London of, of the very late 60s and early 70s, when people just went to each other's houses and played like 10 records and a board game. And nobody knew what was going on with anything. There was clearly no social media. Nobody had a television. <laughs> that yes. world, it, it, it evokes that absolutely perfectly. Oh, I think well, thank you. That's, that's lovely to hear. I think it's, I certainly assumed, one, I, I just didn't occur to me that there was an alternative, really, that young people in 1967, 68, just went to see Pink Floyd playing in <laughs> UFO and went to the marquee to watch the move or whatever. It just what Because in hindsight, of course, what else would you possibly do than schlep off to Seven Sisters to watch Free or whatever? <laughs> but in the moment, you know, they're tired or they've got work the next day or they're, you know, 
hanging around at home doing nothing. And that that is basically what happened. So yeah, I don't think Nick was a particular club goer. I don't think no. they, you know, no. people didn't. Um, I think that, yeah, if it was your local place or you were your college, then you'd go. But I wonder how many people there actually were in the sixties who were endlessly flogging off to obscure. Games. Oh, they very, very. There's a fantastic pages. moment that, that points up exactly what Dave was saying. Where it's when he's still very, very sociable and he's listening to I think it's the birds on headphones in the flat on his own, but he has his hand on the telephone so he can feel it vibrating in case somebody rings him. You know, yes. I thought that that really took you back to the old world. You know. Oh, good. Um, I tried to include anything that sort of anchored Nick in any form of physicality because he seems quite ethereal. There's another yeah. story at John and Bev's wedding uh, reception, as it was. Uh, yeah, it's a uh, generous way of putting it, but at the sort of curry everyone had after their cer- ceremony in the registry yeah. office, Nick was standing next to someone who lit a cigarette and put the, you know, another sign of the times, put the match back in the box. Yes, and, and the match was still smouldering, and there was a loud bang when the box went up, and Nick sort of leapt three feet into the air, as you would. Yes, but yeah, this is Nick Drake. He doesn't leap into the air in shock. So, I, I wanted to include any anything like that 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 made Nick a little feel a bit more real. Uh, it must be very, it must be very odd talking to particularly school friends or university friends or whatever, and they've kind of gone on with their lives. And then they've found themselves constantly being asked about one person who ceased being part of their lives a long, long time ago. Yeah, 50 or 60 years ago. Yeah. And, and they, they must be having to think, oh, God, can I remember anything about him? Or did, and he wasn't that memorable that? other than as a presence. So that was a bit difficult for me, trying to get specifics out of people. Almost all of Nick's friends, I don't know how unusual Nick is in this, to be honest, but quite a lot of Nick's friends said to me that he was funny. That's the salient thing about Nick socially is that he he was witty. He would say dry things, but of course you never get that impression, do you? Nobody no. can remember them. No, but of course, I think our image is actually formed be, mostly by the photographs of him. Actually, yes, that was just that's such an important part of what how we can see. But carry on with what you were saying. Sorry. Well, I, I was just going to say that saying to saying to them though, tell me something witty that Nick <laughs> said. Well, they said, well, the whole point is it was an aside. It wasn't yeah, yeah, laugh. Yeah. It was just no. it was just a Nickism, and and yet that is what they the memory they carry. But I think for Nick's friends, there is such a huge residual sadness. Of course, there is, and would be for any of us losing a friend in such circumstances, um, so young. But I think they were all really fond of Nick. That he had he did inspire a lot of warmth, more than he gave out. That he just did. Um, People liked him and loved him and wanted the best for him. And um, I think when I wrote the book, quite a lot of the research I was doing was during the, the main lockdown. And I was quite lucky to catch people like Joe and Chris Blackwell, but also a huge cast of other um, less or, or completely un, unknown individuals um, at a time when they were quite reflective Right. And I think um, in their 70s, lockdown gave a lot of people a, a pause and a time to think about yeah. the past. And so I was lucky to, to to catch a lot of people at a moment when they were willing to pause and think and, and come back to me. And instead of just having half an hour in between all the other uh, business of the day. So I, I, I think almost universally, the people that um, knew Nick well um, miss him still and, and are very happy to revisit his good times. Um, and, and, you know, I want the reason I put a picture of, we all agreed that with John Murray's to put a picture of Nick smiling on the cover is as a mild corrective to this image. Yes. He is the prophet of doom and, you know, bedsit misery, um, because that there were those elements to him, of course, but that was not definitive of his whole Early. But incredibly self-contained, isn't he? At, at no point does he ever seem to develop a, a major relationship with a girl. There's a girl he went out with, I think, called Kirsty Clegg, was it? And there's a girl, mm-hmm. in fact, he proposed to at one point later yes. in life. Probably a slightly desperate move or whatever. I mean, but you can't really tell. A girl called Sophia, I think. Yeah. But otherwise, he's very, very self-contained. He's just, he just operates on his own, doesn't he? Yes. And, and I think his struggle to come out of himself had, had been going on all his life, really. I think his parents were conscious from, from his childhood that he was self-contained and, and would pot around in the garden quite happily. 
Um, he didn't need company whilst he was perfectly agreeable around others. He wasn't antisocial, but um, he didn't put out much. And I think one of the themes of his father's letters is um, that it would be good for Nick to come out of himself. I think it's easy to misinterpret that as, you know, come on, you should be playing rugger. And, yeah. No, no, he wasn't. Know, there's the one where he writes to him when he's at Cambridge and he says, uh, uh, you know, the reason you got into Cambridge is because, you know, you were recommended by the teacher there as being a sociable and an athlete and musical yeah. and stuff. The other. He said, and what have they got? They said, a toffee-nosed recluse, it would exactly. seem, yeah. which is an amazing thing to say, really. So he was criticised. I and mean, actually, his parents... How he was perceived by his, the other people on his corridor. He was yeah, probably. always behind his closed door of his room playing his guitar, and he never went to the college bar. Yeah, and, and indeed, it was a bit toffee-nosed. I think he he thought these people had nothing to offer him, and he was probably wrong. I think there were no, people sure in his not. college who were interested in underground movies and starting newspapers and so on. But yeah, um, and I I think yeah, there, there, there's a wonderful piece of serendipity in Nick going to Cambridge. Nick's current by 2023 standards, Nick's academic results wouldn't get him into the lowliest. No, 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 no formerly World of Leather University on the yeah. road outside um, an obscure <laughs> town, you know? And yet he went to Cambridge yeah. and he didn't even really want to. But yeah. it was in those days, the old school tie and a bit of Marlborough pulling strings and the fact Nick yeah. was good at sport and Fitzwilliam wanted to put itself on the map by winning a couple of blues or whatever. It all came together for Nick to go. And thank God he did because Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In my view, no Cambridge, no five leaves left. I mean, who can say what Nick might have done under different circumstances? But Cambridge, he met Robert Kirby. He had space to sit around and smoke dope and write songs and... Um, perform in, in comfortable circumstances. And Joe, and he had an overarching structure to his life at Cambridge, which allowed Joe to say, well, at the end of term, come back. And at the weekend, if you're in London, come to Sound Techniques and we'll do a couple of tracks. And so Cambridge was, was the perfect environment for Five Leaves Left to have gestated in even though Nick probably would have said at the time, oh, I hate it here. It's when he did say he wanted to leave quite quickly. Um, so it, it's it's serendipity, I think, for all of us that he did go. Yes, I love, I, I, I love the accounts of of his occasional, you know, you occasionally get kind of bold face names wander into the plot. You know, it's like John Cale turns up at his place to to arrange a couple of tunes. Yes, and you and you get this Welsh whirlwind comes in, working class, yes. kind of really energized, totally totally different. And he also he meets Mick Jagger, doesn't he? And obviously yes. he meets Francois Hardy more than once. Tell us about yes. this. Well, I think, firstly, just to state the bleeding obvious, you know, Nick was really, really good. And I think that didn't radiate as far into the general public consciousness as, as it might have and, and, and um, 
should have perhaps but I think those who did encounter him and those in the business and those who were also recording and playing and so on didn't need convincing it Nick was brilliant and I think that's the number one reason that people still engage with him today sure there's his image but I think going beyond that he is really really good he's a good songwriter he's a good guitarist he's an original songwriter he's a good lyricist all of those things seemed obvious to those in the know at the time and that's why I think Joe Boyd was so mystified that everyone else wasn't hearing what he heard but the Mick so, Jagger story he's in Marrakesh and discovers the stones are staying in a hotel and went in there which shows incredible comments and played didn't he absolutely and what was the reaction it was incredibly positive was it for yes Jack? I mean yeah the stones were obviously absolutely off their heads on the local cattle dung so you know there was probably <laughs> no um serious sense in which Nick was auditioning for them or anything like that. But one of Nick's traveling companions um, said to me that he vividly remembers Mick saying to Nick, look, look, look me up when you're back in London in the summer. And, and he, and he said to me, I bet Mick Jagger didn't say that to everyone. No, and I'm sure, sure he, didn't. he didn't. And, um, and of course that summer, the stones were in huge turmoil with jail and busts and Brian Jones going off the rails and God knows what. And um, I, I doubt Nick did look them up. But it, as you say, Mark, it is a measure of how confident Nick was at that time that he was willing to go into a pretty intimidating bear pit, the stones plus all their entourage looking like medieval, um, you know, pantomime characters and um, and play confidently and well. Yeah. And he was slightly obsessed with Frosois Hardy, wasn't he? I mean, at one point he yes. has dinner with her. And says nothing at all. Yes, I think it's really difficult. One of the biggest challenges for me in writing this book is um, was trying to remember that in the next years of illness, which were 1970, 71, 72, 73 and 74. I mean, it's a long period of, of increasingly bleak mental health. Um, he wasn't himself and, it's, and, and he wasn't anyone really. He was just a vessel for this illness and trying to interpret his behavior or apply quote unquote normal standards of analysis to it um, does him a disservice and felt judgmental. And yes, he he did become slightly hung up on Francoise Hardy. Of course, who in his generation didn't fancy Francoise? But at the same time, she did in his slightly befuddled mind represent something really fundamental to his sense of his own artistry. I think for whatever reason, he became obsessed would be too strong a word, but hung up on the idea that if only she would record one of his songs, that might open a door, that might be one of the ways out. And so there are several sad attempts he made to maintain this fairly non-existent relationship with her by turning up on her doorstep or trying to contact her. Um, but as you, you know, you mentioned him pr proposing to Sophia Ride, one of his friends. I mean, again, that was to me, I could have interpreted that as well. Obviously, he was madly in love with her. And this is a very significant psychological driver for everything that was going on in his world. Or you can say he was just groping in the dark for a key yeah. that would open the door yes. and let the sunshine back in. Yeah. And that was one of several slightly batty you know, looking at it from another perspective, um, ventures that he thought might suddenly be a magic uh, cure for, for all of his problems because he didn't like taking pills. And I think he was always hoping that there would be an alternative way back. And I think there's an awful lot of what seems like just pure bad luck in the story. The timing of the first three albums, I think when 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 the first album comes out, I think Brian Jones died on that very day. Yes. And all the press, the music press, all about that, and the Stones concert a few days later in Hyde Park. Brighter later, I think, it was the postal strike. And I think with Pink Moon, like you talked to Nick Kent, and Nick Kent was saying, well, David Bowie had taken off at that precise moment, and all our energy was being kind of taken up by covering David Bowie. So there were other just elements of, of bad luck, weren't there, in the story? Yes, Um Yes, although, of course, trying to insert Nick into the sort of wider pop narrative, um, it, 
is a bit sort of too pat, I think, because there's always room for anomalies and there's always yeah. room for people who yeah. become really successful out of nowhere. I don't think Pink Moon was ever going to be Harvest or, or Dark Side no. of the Moon. No, um, it's, it's quite interesting. You have those very, more than once in the book, you go, at the same time, these other songwriters were also, and you, and you list off, uh, you know, a whole paragraph full of names of people who had albums out on Warner Brothers or CBS or whatever. And I think, I barely remember most of those names. Sure. And I was, you know, yeah. the odds, the odds against, uh, the odds against somebody making it, I read just absolutely massive, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and most of uh, you know, a lot of them had names a bit like Nick's, like Tim Hollier, Bill Say, yes. <laughs> Will Malone, with these, just, you can imagine, <laughs> and they've all got pictures of long-haired guys on the cover. Yeah. And, and most of them most of them were out there doing gigs. Absolutely. They were, all, I think it's they were at the bottom of the bill at every folk festival in the country, so your chances of catching them were quite high. Absolutely. And, and you know, one singer who I think bears some comparison to Nick in, in certain ways is Duncan Brown, right. whose first yes. album came out on Immediate with Andrew Oldham as the Joe Boyd figure in yeah. the summer of 68, so a, a year before Five Leaves left. But he was a well-brought-up boy with with yeah. RP and a you know string quartet backing him and, and writing dainty songs. Um, his album did nothing, but no. he was on TV, he was in a movie, he was on the old grey whistle test. Yes. Um, it's not as if he he's now a rock legend. No, um, no, 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 no. I mean, although you think that if he'd had a PR that had made him do Oh, that... That's that amazing. The one that's bit where the, he's offered which the, uh, season? Which season didn't have a PR? Yeah. Which really, I had put the book down at that point. That that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. But, but actually, not surprising really when you think how shoestring organisations were back in those days. Well, and but even when, the, but even when you look at EMI um, or Decca, yeah, I collect these press releases. Uh, you know, and and. and they didn't have PRs really in the late sixties. They had a press department, promotion, press and promotion, yes. usually blokes um, yeah. who'd write the most glib, superficial yeah, yeah. press releases, which would be typed and sent out on company-headed paper, slipped inside a record jacket for for you know the local journalists, whatever. But in terms of someone concertedly ringing up and saying, "Look, we've got this great guy." I mean, actually, Ireland did have Muff Winwood. Yeah, but all the same, that the one the girl who does kind of look after him briefly, it's incredible. One point, he's offered an interview by the melody maker with Chris Welsh, and he just turns it down. Yes, and then instead, he finishes up doing an interview with Jackie, I think, you know. Yes, and you think this is just absolutely mad. And then finally, does an interview with Sounds, which is so catastrophic and he's so uncooperative and unforthcoming. I think he just never does another interview after that ever again. But it's no. a shame, really. You just feel that. So many ducks weren't in the, in in line, really. I agree. Uh, Although, just as a, as an aside, um, Jackie, Diana, Mirabelle, boyfriend, all of these public huge sellers, though huge sellers. But they almost all of them, not necessarily going to say in every single issue, but a lot of them have unbelievable pop coverage of obscure artists who hadn't right. sold anything. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Because they were just yeah. looking, they were filled up a page, you know. Yeah, yeah and, and, looking, and, looking and also good-looking boys hip, with a guitar. And, and, and a hip PR might ring up yeah. Jackie person and say, look, they're probably working in the same building or whatever. You know, Jackie was owned by DC Thompson, I think. Yeah, but yeah, they were all Fleet Street type people, and they'd say, "Look, can you do me a favor? Can you do a feature on the crochet donut ring next week or whatever?" Yeah. yeah so yeah. you do get color pictures, yeah, and quite interesting coverage of artists who simply weren't covered elsewhere, and that's how Nick got into Jackie. Clearly, it was a, a wonderful uh, PR woman called Frances Van Staden, who's a forgotten figure, but she was very. Yeah central to Radio Caroline and, and was very well connected and was a great friend of Sandy Denny's and um, and part of the folk oh, right. rock island witch season background. And, and she just used to place these obscure seeming artists in Jackie and these girls who were interested in skincare tips and um, yeah, yeah. the marmalade would suddenly find Nick Drake <laughs> looking up at them. Um, so, yeah, Nick... Nick didn't get as much newspaper coverage as he could have, though. I completely agree. And one of the enduring mysteries for me is that for all the reasons we've discussed, Five Leaves Left wasn't a number one hit or even a number 21 hit. But the fact that it was actively a flop 
is a bit mystifying because yeah, it, is. it was on island time has told me was on nice enough to eat which was a big hit um one of the reviews of um nick live says that he started playing time has told me and there was a short burst of applause from the audience which must show some people have bought his album and i thought no the sample that's how i'm going to through nice enough to eat yes so i think there there were things going on but but why five leaves left didn't sell more i do think it's puzzling i have found globally six reviews of five leaves left yeah, yeah, yeah. that's covering and i've gone through all the record retailer yeah, it wasn't yeah, covered in record yeah. retailer record retailer covered everything it, it wasn't covered in melody maker it, it just wasn't reviewed they, they did a roundup the following month in which there's yeah. one sentence saying something like pleasant album from this newcomer it, it's nothing but- but if you look at back in those days, the even the weekly music papers didn't have that many uh, pages of album reviews. So you tended no. to get things go very condensed into a small amount of space. I tell you what, I was thinking, you know, I worked in what was then the world's biggest record shop, HMV on Oxford Street, in sort of 1973, 74, 75. We used to stock Nick Drake's albums in the Ds. I used to look after them myself. Okay, myself, we stocked them one copy at a time. Okay, so we, we always had one. And if you stocked one copy in a shop that had the biggest footfall in the Western world, that meant that you might hope to sell one every four months. To a to a tourist who would come from the other side of the world, go, you've never heard of this, but have you, there's a bloke called Nick Drake, and you go, yeah, it's over there. And then you'd sell that one that you replace it with another copy, which would, again, take four months to sell. That's, did, that, did that reflect that, you making sure there was always one? No, that was – you were the biggest you, – you, you kept records. You know, your right. job was to keep the records and not everybody else did. But you kept – my point is you keep them in, in small enough quantities you know, to reflect how rarely they sold. Yes. You know, whereas – Whereas a Beach Boys album, you'd be ordered them five at a time or whatever, even back catalogue once, yes. because you were, you would probably be selling them quite frequently. Yeah, um, you, yeah. you could argue you know, that if- most most people in ninety six when Nick here's the point when Nick Drake died in so we weren't talking about seventy four in, in, in the NME, it wasn't a big story, was it? It wasn't a story at all. Nick's death was, simply I'm wasn't sure reported. I re- yeah, I oh I thought I thought I remembered reading. Okay. As no, so if he'd had okay. more success, if he'd had more success then. Coverage, yeah. Okay. His death if itself had... wasn't a news snippet in the news section. There was no reference to him having mm. passed away. That's extraordinary. That's amazing, isn't it? it yeah. God. Whereas when you could, well, you could say the world we live in now, where, you know, minor characters, minor bass players mm. of groups get in the huge yeah. you know, 2,000 words in the, 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 in the Guardian. Yeah. It is. You could argue that if he had more success then, you know, if he'd had kind of even half of what someone like John Martin had, that there wouldn't be this big renaissance now. I mean, part of it was because he was so unsuccessful. Oh, yeah, that's the story. That's definitely a big part of the the story that people can relate to. I think for him, it would have been nothing but a good thing if he had had a sense that his music was being picked up on and engaged yes. with and, and connecting. I don't think having a hit would have necessarily been a good thing for him in terms of no. the demands it would have placed on him to appear and to be visible. But I think what really destroyed him in terms of his music, there are lots of factors that that undid him, but I think in terms of his music, it was the sense that he might as well not have bothered. And for any artist, that's obviously crushing. Um, mm. But I do think there was more of, um, an interest in him during his lifetime than he perhaps realised. But, you know, the pockets didn't know who he... They were some some people in Northumberland or whatever and some people in Cornwall. Yeah. And you wouldn't have known about that. No, no, you would know. You would know every did. day what people were saying about you. But then he was just uh, alone in the house and yes. unaware, wasn't he? But is the I, case I, I, Someone that, said that it... to me, um, there was a wonderful little moment, it's not in the book, but someone said to me, in my school mag, I got an email from someone saying that in my school magazine from Cheltenham or somewhere in 1973, one of my friends wrote a poem about Nick Drake. And it's, I can't remember the name of the author, but it, anyway, I found the bloke had written it. He said, 
So I, I looked, I found the author. He's now a sort of your age, this guy, or, you know, your generation. And I, and I said to him, Look, I'm calling you about a poem you wrote in your school magazine in 1973 about Nick Drake. And this bloke said, you what? How did you, how do you, what do you do? And I said to him, I'm just interested. Why did you write this? Why did you connect with Nick? Yeah. And he said, well, why wouldn't I? He was brilliant. And, and I think there were quite a few people who felt like that. Um, and I, I love talking to each of them because getting the, a, a vivid sense of how they reacted to his music in the, you know, in the moment while Nick was still alive, I, I thought was very relevant to my kind of imaginings of, of his world and so on. And I, I wonder, and I'd be really interested to know what you two would say on this, because I've got no idea really, but let's just say for the sake of argument that in the autumn of 1974 a full page advert had appeared in melody maker saying one night only nick drake is going to play at the rainbow or whatever it might be would it have been a good good turnout i I think it probably would have personally i think a lot of people were like great nick drake finally there's something for us all to rally around there's a gig I don't know if I agree. Uh, I don't know if I wouldn't say the rainbow. Rainbow's a big old place, three thousand people. Um, And I don't, I don't know. People just behaved in a different way then, and it's very, it's, it's impossible. And also, there was so much else going on. There's so much much every week. Something would distract you. Suddenly, I can remember me and all my friends suddenly just discovering America. So American artists are better than British ones. Yeah. This is really exciting. Let's follow the new riders of the Purple Sage. You know, let's follow the Allman Brothers band yeah. or whoever it was, you know. And uh, we just sort of just decided to, 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 to lose interest in British acts. And these things just happened. There yeah. was so much. You were spoiled for choice. I don't know if that would have worked. It's a nice thought. In 1972, yeah. I think, or 71, Carl Dallas wrote a great big spread in Melody Maker about folk rock. Yeah. It was a sort of slightly lazy you know, how do we fill up two pages? We'll do an overview of a genre sort of thing. Yeah. But in it, there's a very, to me, intriguing sentence where he's doing a a bit of a roundup towards the end of other people you might have heard of who fit into this. And he said, um, you know, Nick Drake's talented, but doesn't perform much or something. Um, But there are pockets uh, all over the country who who pounce on any, any little scrap of information they can find about him. It's words to that effect. I think I quoted uh, it, but and I found it interesting that that even then there were people who were thinking, "Who the hell is this guy?" They just didn't know. Is he alive? Is he dead? Is he from London? Is he from Scotland? Is he a, is he Australian? Who is he? There's no clue. Yeah, but, you, you, know. you quote somebody in the book who writes a letter to him, and he must have kept this letter because you've seen it. So it must have ended yes, up in Nick the Nick house. Up. Sent on for the record company, isn't it? Yeah. And there's a girl from Italy, I think, just writes saying, "Who are you?" Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, I think you're really good. He doesn't <laughs> re- respond, of course. No. No. But I said no. to Joe, and I thought this was quite interesting. You know. Why is there no information about Nick on a record on his record jacket? And Joe exactly. said to me, putting information about artists on record sleeves was incredibly uncool. Yes, right. Culturally, you know, the early Beatles, no, the whole idea was you know, mystery essays by Derek Taylor and so on. But suddenly, the idea of having three long, thin columns of text from a PR on the back of an album almost overnight in sort of 67, 68. Yeah, no, it's all about mystery. Yes. But yeah, it's all that, it's all about it? what's happening now rather than what happened in the past, you know. And that's the other thing that Nick Drake obviously is, is, is the legacy of Nick Drake has been a beneficiary of the fact that we suddenly everybody's interested. Well, it has been for a, quite a long time interested in pop music of the past. We're just yes. predisposed to, th- you know, seventeen-year-olds grow up thinking it's better. Because yes. it, it yeah. happened years ago. Because it's kind of authentic. It's authentic. It's authentic. And I'll tell you the, I'll tell you the, I'll tell you the other thing that I think Nick, Nick Drake was a, a beneficiary of is headphone culture. It's yes. Walkman culture. It's going off on your own. At the time, he was kind of slightly too quiet. <laughs> yes. He didn't make enough noise. Yes. Kind of. Well, I thought because you'd be listening to it in rooms full of people drinking or or whatever, you know, partying. Yeah. Well, I think Joe took whatever. strength from from the thought that Leonard Cohen had made huge inroads yes. singing but, esoteric songs with strings, but without okay, performing. Joe, 
Leonard came in, and I speak as somebody who went to college in the year that every female in the whole of residence had a copy of Songs of Leonard Cohen and, uh, you know, Simon and Garfunkel's Racist. Here's the great thing about Leonard Cohen. His songs had plots that everybody could get their head around. It was right. all about Suzanne takes you down yep. to a place by the river. The partisan. And everybody yep. thought, I can see that. I can absolutely see that. Nick Drake, not quite like that, I no. don't think. You know, whereas people felt that they could apply Leonard Cohen to their lives. Leonard Cohen was a, it was a personality, wasn't he? It was like a pop yeah. star, you know. Was, here's yeah. me, here's me writing about my life. Here's me on. The, here's the gorgeous woman that I'm I'm sharing a Greek, you know, yes. cabin with on the back of my second album. You know, Nick Drake wasn't. It wasn't like that. It was a, it was a fade. It was sepia compared to all that sort of stuff, you know. Yeah. And I think it, t- it took a long time. And even I, you know, I remember that stuff at the time. And even for me, it didn't really make sense until about 20 years later. Now, I was aware of it in 1970, 71 or whatever, but it didn't start making sense until 20 years later. And I think that applies to quite a lot of music, actually. And, you know, that it finds its time, you know. Why do you think he's connecting on such a scale now? I mean, there were various things that that made that happen. There was the Volkswagen ad in um, 1999 and various documentaries. But why do you think that people just have this fondness for him now? What, 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 what makes him work in 2023? I think, I think it, to an extent, ties in with what David just said. I mean, of course, there's the poet Modi, Jim Morrison thing, you know, where, where you, you're iconic and, that, and you die young and that immediately makes you a bit glamorous. So I can yeah. see that on a very superficial level, young people might think that he's, it's cool to... You never lose your looks. Yes, exactly. Yeah, right. But I think more importantly, um, as I said earlier, the music's just very, very good. So there's that. But I think there's also, um, you know, as David implied just now, there's there's so much space within Nick's music for for an individual response. I think there is no one Nick Drake for an audience. And I think if you're listening to Black Sabbath, you know, you're likely to have the same response as the next person listening to Black Sabbath. So it makes it a very communal listening experience. You know, it is what it is. And it's brilliant. I don't mean to be rude about Black Sabbath for a millisecond. But I think with Nick, everyone's got their own personal response to it because there's so much space within Nick's lyrics and within his presentation for a very private communion with his records. And, and, And so I think it's music that, you can get quite lost in on a personal level and and um, feel that is yours because you've got your version of why it's important to you. And that personal engagement, I think, drives people to to keep listening quite, um, you know, throughout life, really. That's really well put. Well, it's a well, fantastic it, book. It is it's a fantastic really, book. Really, really good. It really is. It Thank really you. is. I never thought I could read such a long book about such a short life. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.